Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You can be a compassionate mess. And that just gives us permission not to have it together. Because realistically, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have it together all the time. I don't think I ever will. So it lets you be who you are. That was Dr. Susan Pollock on Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Hi, Diana. I'm so excited to introduce this episode today that we have with Susan Pollack, the co-founder of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And she talks about her wonderful book, Self-Compassion for Parents, Nurture Your Child by Caring for Yourself. Yeah, Al, I noticed you're on a little bit of a self-compassion kick here. You've really gotten interested in applying some of these ideas to your life. Yeah, I, I, I credit you with my having um, been uh, infected with the self-compassion bug in the most delightful of ways. Um, your episode with Dr. Christopher Germer, um, which we'll link to, was wonderful, and it just kind of opened my eyes up to the science and the practice of self-compassion, and I started reading more, and then at the end of this past summer, I ended up attending a self-compassion retreat, which I actually talk about in this episode. This episode is so great because you and Dr. Pollock weave together uh, ideas of parenting from your own experience and storytelling of that with some of the ideas of self-compassion. And then she also uh, walks us through some experiential practices, even some eyes open experiential practices of self-compassion in the episode. That's right. And what is so cool about this is that I directly asked her, you know, how, how can busy parents fit in the self-compassion, some of these mindfulness exercises in their everyday lives? And she was so terrific about, you know, acknowledging, like, it is hard to close your eyes. It is hard to set aside five, 10 minutes. And she has some really cool strategies that she, in the podcast, walks me through, which is um, just a really cool thing as a listener, uh, that you get to actually take home some of these strategies and skills that she teaches within this episode. A lot of the work is ongoing and little bits throughout our day. And it really um, reminded me when you talked about uh, the no mud, no lotus concept from Thich Nhat Hanh. And I actually spent some time at Plum Village, where is uh, in France with Thich Nhat Hanh in my 20s. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh, he was originally from Vietnam, but then he was moved in exile to Plum Village, to France and, and built this monastery of monks and nuns um, called Plum Village. And 
At the center of Plum Village is an actual lotus pond that he planted there for the purpose of a reminder of the no mud, no lotus metaphor that you that you talk about in this episode. But what's also interesting about the um, Plum Village is that throughout the land, there are little reminders. There's things that are written on rocks that say breathe. There's flags that say things like I have arrived, I am home. There are bells that are rung throughout the day. And whenever a bell is rung, everyone stops whatever they do and takes a breath. And so what it makes me think about is even people that are living in a monastery, committing their lives to be monks and nuns, need reminders. So certainly we need reminders as parents to take that kind of break. So I think that if, as parents, if we can you know, implant some reminders here and there to be self-compassionate and take that breath, follow the lead of Thich Nhat Hanh. could be really helpful. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that, that concept of no mud, no lotus is so powerful because at the most difficult times you can remind yourself, you know, that these difficult experiences help us grow. They build our character. They teach us something. And I love sort of the the compliment of just in, inserting reminders of your love and, and taking a break when you need one. And again, what's so powerful about the self-compassion work is that you can take that break right in the messiness of what parenting really is, which is busy, taxing, you know, uh, demanding work. And by doing taking those breaks and by building in practices of self-compassion, we can grow and do our job as parents more effectively and more lovingly and more joyfully. So it's a very powerful idea. And um, the, just all the ideas that Susan walks me through are, are just really powerful ways to change your parenting for the better. Thank you for doing this episode, Yael. It was really lovely. I'm here today with Dr. Susan Pollock. Um, who is the president of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. She's also a co-founder and teacher at the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion. And she's a close colleague and friend of both Dr. Christopher Germer, who we've had on our show before, episode 75, and Dr. Kristen Neff, who's known as the Self-Compassion Lady. And most importantly, Susan is here to talk about her amazing book, Self-Compassion for Parents, Nurture Your Child by Caring for Yourself. Welcome, Susan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to share a little bit of personal information about myself on the show today. Um, as uh, ongoing listeners probably already know, I am the tired parent of three little boys. Um, my youngest is almost three, and then I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. And so this book was, I felt like it was written for me, but I also have this sense that any parent who reads it will have that experience. And it was funny because I was prepping for the interview and just yesterday, I had to go to the supermarket with my three-year-old, my almost three-year-old in tow, and I, I, I literally experienced one of the vignettes that you describe in your book where you're in the supermarket, you're sort of trying to get through, you're trying to be kind to your toddler, and I gave him a bar to get through the market. He asked if he could go on a ride on the little mini merry-go-round that they had outside, and I realized when we got out that I didn't have a quarter, so I needed to go back in to get change for a dollar, and I ended up getting change for a dollar at the little mini coffee shop that they had there, and of course, he sees the donuts, so I'd already given him a bar. He was going to have the pony ride. It was almost lunch, so I said no to the donut, the one no, because I was just trying to make the morning easy, and of course, that initiated like an hour and a half long tantrum where he was kicking and crying and fussing. And as I emailed you, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it aged me by a year and that I got like, you know, a dozen more gray hairs. <laughs> I was 
hoping that you'd be willing to share a little bit about yourself as a parent. How old are your kids and, and are there any recent events where you too have found yourself in need of the kind of life raft that self-compassion offers? Sure. I'd be glad to share, but first let me respond empathically to your donut meltdown story, which is it happens to everyone. And in many ways, it's more difficult now than it was when when I was raising my kids who are now 28 and 31 because we didn't have cameras. So you weren't worried that someone was going to, you know, film you and then, you know, call DSS or, you know, post it online and, you know, you'd be flamed on the internet. But you're absolutely right. When your kid is melting down, you are all alone in that supermarket and people start staring at you and you you feel like they're judging you like oh my god i feel like a terrible parent my kid is having a tantrum rather than yeah you know toddlers have tantrums that goes with the territory and i think just giving that kindness to yourself like yeah i'm an imperfect parent we all melt down this is what happens let me be kind to myself let me soothe myself and then see if I can respond to my child appropriately. And this is actually a great segue because a lot of people feel that self-compassion means being indulgent, means letting your kid eat all the donuts he wants. You know, kid doesn't want to go to school. Oh, no problem, honey. You know, stay home and watch cartoons and eat chocolate cake. Well, of course, that's not what it's about. You want the best for your child. You need to set limits. You need to set rules. You need to say, no, honey, you know, we're going to have dinner soon. Um, Donuts, not a good choice. Or, you know, no, you have to go to school today or do your homework or whatever. So people often think self-compassion means being permissive, means being indulgent, and even means being a wimp. Um, In fact, Kristen Neff, the um, researcher you just mentioned, um, was very excited years ago when the New York Times um, did a, a piece on self-compassion. And she thought, oh, great, oh, great, I made the Times. And then she looked at the comments, and the comments immediately deflated her because they said, oh, great, just what we need, a nation of whips. So that that is how people understand compassion, self-compassion. And it's not. The best definition is treating yourself the way a good friend would treat you. So let's say you went home and you call one of your friends and you say, oh my God, I had this horrible experience at the supermarket. My son melted down and it went on for an hour and a half and I felt terrible. I you know, thought I was the worst parent in the world. I started thinking, oh my God, he's going to need... 15 years of therapy to recover from the donut incident. And I just got 10 new gray hairs and five new wrinkles. And your friend ideally would say, yeah, you know, don't worry. That happens to all of us. That's what toddlers do. As psychiatrist Dan Siegel would say, the, the brain is under construction, you know, and, you know, it's hard to soothe a child when they're having a tantrum. And maybe your friend would, would share some of her strategies, but you would get off that call 
or that text feeling better, feeling like you weren't the worst mother in the world. And then just to segue that into your question, um, my son recently got married. And we think of self-compassion as something we need um, during difficult times. But my feeling is we need it all the time because during a wedding or, you know, any other major life event, feelings come up. And I was feeling much more vulnerable and much more emotional than I ever would have imagined. Because I thought, oh, what a happy occasion. He's getting married and, you know, this is a really good partner for him. I really felt sad. So I put on my self-compassion hat and my clinical hat and said to myself, look, this is a major life transition. Um, even though it's good, there's still a sense of loss. Of course you're feeling emotional. And then I was able to sort of, you know, get it a little more together, comfort myself, be kind to myself, and say, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to, you know, feel sad. It's okay to cry. And at the same time, I'm happy. So just holding all of that rather than, you know, giving myself a lecture like, Susan, what is wrong with you? You know, why are you feeling so upset? So that helped me give myself a little more space. Yeah, I think that one of the most helpful things for me about self-compassion as a construct are the three core components of it, which is like this idea of self-kindness, which isn't, as you're saying, it's not indulgence, but it's sort of like a sense of just warmth and, and kindness that is directed towards yourself. Mm-hmm. And the other piece that I think you're really speaking to is the sense of common humanity, that we all struggle sometimes, that we, even in the best of times, we can also experience some of the more painful emotions. And that's just really a common human experience, not to mention that parenting is a very difficult sort of life role that just takes so much of you and that um, means so much to us and therefore is going to sort of carry like more happiness and more pain Mm -hmm. along with all the various steps as, you know, from infancy from our kids infancy to their toddlerhood to as you're saying like you know this happy occasion of your son getting married and the sense of being connected to other people as we go through it and and knowing that this is a really common experience and that our experience is both unique and not unique because it's the human experience I think is so helpful Mm -hmm. and then of course there's the mindfulness piece which is sort of being able to hold it mindfully and sort of make space for it and not turn away from it but instead to sort of acknowledge it and accept it is so helpful absolutely and since you raised it how about if i guide you and your listeners um through a version of the self-compassion break that you can use during a donut meltdown tantrum in the supermarket so um the nice thing about this is you can change the language to make it work for you. So as I guide you through, um, I'll give you a few languaging options because not one size works for all. Um, So let me try that. And this is something you can do with your eyes open or your eyes closed. Um, It's a good thing to do in the supermarket or in a fight with your teenager or 
you know, uh, during a wedding when you can't close your eyes, for example, without people saying what's going on with her. So, um, so let me, you know, give you a few variations here. So just sit comfortably, either eyes open or closed. And perhaps just take a breath or so, just grounding, feeling yourself sitting, feeling yourself standing wherever you are, just grounding, feeling your body. And then starting with that component of mindfulness, and what you could say is, well, oh, this is a rough moment, or this is a moment of difficulty, or this is a moment of sadness. And if you like, putting a hand on your heart, or two hands on your heart. And some people don't like that, no problem. Um, one thing I like to do, um, perhaps, is just give yourself a hug. Or some people like to put their hands on their neck or their jaw, you know, wherever it feels comforting and soothing. Some people like a hand on the heart and a hand on the belly. So feel free to experiment with giving yourself what we call soothing touch. Um, and if you don't like it, no problem. So basically, this is, this is a difficult moment. And then bringing in that piece of common humanity, and I'll keep tweaking this for you, being a parent is difficult. In fact, depending on how stressed out you're feeling, being a parent is impossible. In fact, Freud called it one of the three impossible professions. And I'm not alone with this. Almost every parent experiences a tantrum with a toddler. You know, every parent in the course of those over 20 years, because it's not like parenting ends once they leave home, every parent has a hard time. So you just feel like you're not alone. And one image that I like, for example, would just be to imagining that at this very moment, there are probably thousands of parents, if not more, around the globe who are dealing with some sort of difficult situation with a toddler or some tantrum. So if you expand out that perspective, so you feel like thousands of other parents are going through this right this very moment, you don't feel as alone, you don't feel as isolated. And I find that helps me just sort of take a breath. But thousands of other people are fighting with their adolescent child right now. So just feel that common humanity, which I find very soothing and very comforting. And then the last phrase is, let me be kind to myself. You know, having a kid meltdown in public is rough. It's, you know, embarrassing. You're afraid someone's going to start, you know, filming you. Like, yeah, this is, this is hard. Let me be kind to myself. 
He may even want to say, let me give myself some compassion right now. Let me take a few deep breaths. Let me not beat myself up. Let me not get into ruminating that I'm the worst mother in the world, that I'm a terrible parent, that my kid's going to need 15 years of therapy. Let me not make it worse. This is a difficult moment. Let me be kind to myself. And this will pass. And then just take a few deep breaths, letting yourself rest. And then when you're ready, perhaps finding some movement in your arms and legs, maybe slowly opening your eyes, looking around, coming back. So how, how was that? I really find that kind of an exercise useful. And I, I just want to say that in the book, there's so many of those different kinds of exercises and you really can find the language. You offer all sorts of different kinds of language and sort of mm-hmm. focal points that um, can variously work for different parents. But mm-hmm. this just sort of like pausing and just giving yourself permission to have a difficult moment for me is so useful because the reality is I have difficult moments all the time every day. I feel stressed out and anxious and sort of like I'm behind and not doing things as well as I should be doing. And just taking a moment to give myself permission to slow down and feel whatever it is that I feel um, helps me to kind of just recenter in the place that I am. And I actually, I I wanted to sort of dovetail with another story, um, a personal story of me actually going to the self-compassion retreat, as I was mentioning to you before we started the the recording, that I was, um, I attended a self-compassion retreat with Chris Germer and Kristen Mm -hmm. Neff last month. And it was um, scheduled at the tail end of a very difficult summer that I'd had. My father actually passed away in May and I just mm-hmm. couldn't get away for the entire summer because of kids' schedules and my work schedule and my husband's work schedule. And of course they didn't have parents to back me up. And there was sort of like the double whammy of that grief. And so mm-hmm. I very intentionally scheduled this retreat. It was actually the first retreat I've ever gone to. And mm-hmm. I was very excited for it. And I sort of spent the summer really struggling. And every time I would have a tantrum with my kids or with my husband, I would sort of reassure myself, like, this is really hard, but you have this retreat at the end of the summer. Like, just hang hang in there. You can mm-hmm. do it. And so, and it was a lot of, you know, front end logistical planning. And and I was so excited. I got on the road, the sun was shining, and I was going to self-compassion retreat, and I was just really excited. Mm-hmm. And I was an hour away from arriving at the retreat center when I heard a g-g-g-g-g-g. And I was like, oh, God, what's happened? And I pulled over, and sure enough, my tire had exploded. It was starting to get dark. I was an hour away from the retreat center. I was, hey, thank goodness I had cell phone service. And I, it was just, you know, one of those moments where life throws you a curveball. And for all your good planning and intention, there's nothing to do. And, and there was just nowhere to go and nothing to do other than be in that moment. And thankfully, because I hadn't yet attended the self-compassion retreat, I actually had some background knowledge of it because I really put it to use. And what you talk about in your book is that you don't need to start in any particular place. You can start where you are. Like mm-hmm. if you're having a difficult moment, 
it, it can be there where you offer yourself the self-compassion. And mm-hmm. I, I sort of, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this idea of starting where you are, that you don't need to sort of go somewhere different to begin the yeah. self-compassion work. Absolutely. But I'm wondering, and I'm sure all your listeners are wondering what happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I called a tow truck. Yeah. And um, they actually got there after it was dark. So I was, I was really starting to panic by the time they arrived. But they mm-hmm. towed me to the side of the road. They put on the spare tire. And then I had to drive an hour on a spare tire. And my husband helped me craft a plan where I dropped it at a, a dealer it was after hours I had to drop the key and then I had to take a lift from the dealer to the retreat center. It was kind of a mess. And so I missed the opening uh, activities. And then I also had to go in the middle of the day to pick up my car because the retreat was supposed to end on Sunday. But of course the dealer wasn't open on Sunday. So it was, it was a pretty stressful thing and it was a really great opportunity to practice some of that self-compassion in action where Mm -hmm. I was there at this retreat. I was feeling this sort of nibbling sense of anxiety about how am I going to get home and is the car going to be ready in time? And this is so unfair that I've worked so hard to get here and I had to struggle through the summer and here now I'm being thrown this difficult experience and um, it has the potential to ruin everything. And and just to sort of pull back and say, but can I be here in this moment? Can I hear what Dr. Neff and Dr. Germer are saying and and sort of offer myself this compassion? Can I, Mm -hmm. um, we had opportunities to share stories with other um, retreat attendees and I shared it with them and I was able to receive their compassion as well as give it to myself. So it was a really actually incredible opportunity, you know, as And I was able to recognize it as I was going through it, as well as, you know, as I'm reflecting back now Mm -hmm. um, to, to take this really difficult experience and recognize that there was some real gifts of resilience building. And you talk about that in your book Mm -hmm. and opportunities to practice offering myself compassion and also to really participate more fully in the things that really were gifts and and very beautiful gifts as I was, um, you know, at the retreat. Mm -hmm. That kind of terrible, awful, no good day, you know, to paraphrase one of our favorite uh, children's books, happens to everyone. And that's why self-compassion is so good. It's, I like to call it compassion on the go. So you can use it at any point. You can use it when you get a flat tire. You can use it when your car runs out of gas. You don't feel like, oh, well, I can't do self-compassion um, until I get off caffeine or, you know, un- until I become vegan or until I start practicing, you can use it in yeah, this. Or even until my kids are sleeping through the night or until I don't have X, Y, or Z responsibility that's just taking me down. Yeah. So I think often we think, well, I need to get ready to do this. And what I love about it is, no, you can do it in this very second. You don't need to be calm. Um, what I loved about it is it, you know, helped me feel like I could use it even though I was a mess. And, um, in the mindful self-compassion program, one of the meditation teachers, um, in Scotland actually says that you can be a compassionate mess. And that just gives us permission not to have it together because realistically, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have it together all the time. I don't think I 
ever will. So it lets you be who you are. And it lets you be real. You don't feel like you need to put on this mask of being perfect and being the best mother in the world. You can be authentic. And that's a huge, huge gift. And one of the good pieces of research that I really like is when we practice self-compassion for ourselves, we can give it to others more readily, which means that you will model it for your kids. So rather than, I was just working with someone this morning who was telling me that her child got really upset because the child, you know, missed um, a goal in soccer and, you know, was in tears and hated herself and everything. And, uh, you know, the mother who's been working on self-compassion was saying, look, it's okay, honey. You're not going to make every goal. You know, we're human. Rather than, you know, there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. Because we can get into those cycles of rumination. And, you know, being in a baseball town, uh, Red Sox are often, you know, um, good metaphors. No one is ever going to bat 1,000. You know, you, everyone strikes out. Even the best players strike out. Okay. So it, it lets you be real. And it lets you manage the difficulties, the flat tires, you know, the empty, running out of gas that um, we all have in life. And it sounds like you, you handled it wonderfully. <laughs> I didn't feel it at the time. Right. Yeah, and, and I think that that's kind of the cool thing about self-compassion is you can just sort of observe yourself and say, wow, like I'm freaking out right now. <laughs> and it's okay. Like I'm, yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay. I, I, I can do this. It feels terrible. And I'm, I, I wish it weren't this way, but, but it will be okay. And one of the Tich Nhat Han says, no mud, no lotus. And, and that exactly. I think is such an important idea that the difficult events of our lives, including, and maybe especially the difficult events in parenting, make us stronger as people and therefore make us stronger models for our kids and deepen mm-hmm. our relationships in ways that we might not even get to anticipate. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is the sort of surprising gift of the messiness and the challenge of it all. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that um, we can learn to appreciate, and that's, I think, what self-compassion helps us to do, is to appreciate the challenges in, in a way that we might not otherwise be able to. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to go in this direction or not, but one of my favorite meditation practices is actually no mud, no lotus practice. Please, yeah. Could you walk us through it? So um, this is a practice that I probably learned 20 years ago from a wonderful um, Zen teacher. And what I really liked about it is it helped me in those moments when I felt like I was a mess. You know, things were going well. I was, you know, feeling down. I was feeling anxious. My kids were having a hard time. And this helped me feel like there was some purpose in the mud and muck of life. So let me guide you through this and I can do it in three or four minutes. Um, So just sit comfortably. Take a few deep breaths. Just let yourself ground. If you like, just tune into your body. Any Notice any places where you may be holding tension or tightness. 
And then when you're ready, just get an image of a beautiful lotus. And if you don't know what a lotus looks like, just imagine a, a beautiful water lily floating on a pond. And one of the cool things about a lotus is it has a really, really long stem. So the stem sometimes can be five feet. So just imagine you see the lotus on top. It's almost like you have x-ray vision. You can see down through the stem of the lotus going all the way down into the mud and muck of the pond. And realize that the lotus draws its nourishment, or we could say its resources, from the mud and the muck. that it metabolizes the dirt, the soil, the messiness. And imagine, if you'd like, that you can rest on the bottom of the pond with the lotus. And rather than thinking, oh, I need to clean up all this messiness, all this mud and muck, just feel, doing almost a U-turn, that this is organic material and it has nutrients. That beauty and nourishment can come from these depths. So instead of pushing it away, just allow yourself to rest there. Just doing a cognitive reframe and seeing this as nourishment. Just as composting increases the nutrients in the soil, think of yourself as composting, is resting in the quiet, in the darkness. And then when you're ready, you may want to imagine that you can rise up the stem of the lotus, just seeing beautiful blossom, and knowing that the darkness, that the mud and the muck is useful, that it has value, that you don't need to clean it up. And perhaps during the day, if you encounter a difficult situation or a challenge, you may want to say to yourself, okay, no mud. No lotus. And Tignanhan would also say, no garbage, no flowers. So both, both go together.
And when you're ready, just take a deep breath, perhaps find some movement, and open your eyes. Thank you. That was really nice. How, how was it for you? I really like the image of coming up through the lotus and sort of coming out, you know, back up into the fresh air and saying, you know, with gratitude, like, you know, now I have a little bit more to work with. Um, And for some reason I have this mantra that went through my head of, I got this, I got this. (laughs) Because I think I often have this feeling and I think as many parents do of, I don't know what, how to get through this and I have no idea what's at the other side. And one thing I actually wanted to segue us into is talking a little bit about the uncertainty and disappointment of parenting. Because I think it's, it almost feels like, oh, well, it's nice and well and good to say no mud, no lotus. But we have these small creatures that are counting on us. And, and what if we fail them? And I wanted to share this quote from a novel that I recently read called This Is How It Always Is. It's about parents who raise uh, five boys, I think. And when the youngest is in first grade, he discovers that he identifies as a girl and not as a boy, or he, that's sort of the time when he makes the more um, assertive disclosure. And so Mm -hmm. the the book is really about how this, the set of parents um, and and the entire family tries to journey through this transition that their youngest is going through. And there's this beautiful quote that I think just encapsulates a lot of the uncertainty of parenting. And it goes as follows. This is how it always is. You have to make these huge decisions on behalf of your kid, this tiny human whose fate and future is entirely in your hands, who trusts you to know what's good and right, and then to be able to make that happen. You never have enough information. You don't get to see the future. And if you screw up, if with your incomplete contradictory information, you make the wrong call, nothing less than your child's entire future and happiness is at stake. It's impossible. It's heartbreaking. It's maddening. But there's no alternative. And for me, Mm -hmm. I think that this is sort of like the pressure that we face as parents, this sort of responsibility. And, and you write that, you know, before children, most of us have a sense of mastery and control. And then afterwards, we feel really vulnerable and shaky. Yeah, so absolutely. But for those of us who were readers, um, who's the author of, of that? I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's, it's okay. one of the best books I've read in a long time. It's the title is This is How It Always Is. And the author is Lori Frankel. And again, mm-hmm. we'll link to it. It's a beautiful book. Okay, story. great. Thanks. You know, I agree with that quote, and yet I want to say that kids are more resilient than we realize. Because unfortunately, just as we can't control anything, we will make mistakes. And usually what happens is we make mistakes and we feel awful. We feel, you know, we've ruined our child for life. But usually what I found, and again, not only um, do I have over 30 years of parenting, I have um, even more time as a clinician and it helps so much when you realize that your kids are resilient. Just because you make a mistake doesn't mean that's it, that you've ruined them for life. However, one thing I find very helpful, and again, the self-compassion research really um, bears this out, is when we do screw up, when we do make a mistake, it's so helpful to say to your child, you know, if I could do that over again, 
I would do it differently. You know, we all make mistakes and we don't do things perfectly and we can learn from this. So self-compassion helps us be more resilient and um, it helps us apologize. And if you model that for your kid, then you'll ideally see your child saying, oh, I didn't make that goal in soccer, but I'm human, you know, I'll do my best. I'll, you know, maybe practice a little harder. It's not the end of the world. Rather than I'm going to go in bed and go to sleep, I hate myself. And every everyone on my team is angry with me. Yeah, I love that message because I think it allows you to sort of bounce back, which is in a sense, the definition of resilience is sort of, you know, taking the wax of life and being able to learn and grow and, and make, you know, something good of them. And one thing that you're referring to, and you talk a lot about in your book is this idea that, you know, our kids have tantrums, but so do we, we all fall apart sometimes. And it's, it's really, it's, I mean, there's two things that I think you're saying. So one is like, what, what can you do that's helpful with it? And, and a part of that is be self-compassionate and teach your kids and the second thing that comes from that is being able to model for them that this is a lifelong process that as humans, we're constantly making mistakes. And that's really, I make so many mistakes, but through this kind of work, I'm able to take those moments or those days when I'm just on in a full out tantrum mode and, and come back and talk to my kids about it and say, you know, this is something I'm working on too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I guess I want to add to that, that not only do... Our kids like it when we admit that we've made a mistake, but our colleagues like it. And that always surprises me. I um, mentioned to you before the show that I you know, just ran this huge um, benefit that Rick Hansen was giving for our Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. And I was teasing the person um, who was helping us give continuing ed credits. And I said, no, this time I'm going to remember to take the continuing ed forms home. Because at the last conference I did, I was so exhausted, I spaced out, I left them here and they got thrown out. It was a total nightmare and I felt horrible. And it was I was just like exhausted and spaced out and thought someone else was going to take them. Yeah. And the person who was collecting it said, thank you so much for saying that. I am so touched. You know, you screw up too. Yeah. And I- it was one of those moments of common humanity. And I thought, yeah, this is really good. And, you know, this was a, a younger person. Really good to say we all make mistakes a lot. Right. And in the therapist role, I think it can be really useful too. Often when I'm treating patients who are also parents, me admitting that even as a therapist, I struggle sometimes and I make big mistakes really just normalizes the experience. And, and, and I think in a culture of social media where everyone's putting up these pictures of everything looking perfect, we sort of lose sight that the, of that fact that everyone makes mistakes. Everyone gets tired and loses track. Everyone drops the ball. Everyone has a tantrum. And the more that we can normalize that, the more we can let go of the shame. And you talk a lot about shame in your book and how, how problematic it can be if we sort of um, buy into the shame narrative and mm-hmm. don't take a step back and offer ourselves some compassion around it. Yeah. And in fact, you were um, just mentioning the self-compassion retreat you were at. 
Um, Chris Germer, as you may know, is working on um, a new book on shame um, and self-compassion, which I think is so wonderful because shame is notoriously hard to work with. Because as you know, with shame, it's not just I did something bad or I did something, you know, stupid or I, you know, forgot the continuing ed forms and they got thrown away. You know, it's I'm bad. Right. I'm a bad person. And it's when it goes that deeply, it's really hard to work with. Yeah. 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 So one other um, area that I wanted to talk about with you and get your insights on is some of the challenges that we can have when we are parenting our kids either through a difficult developmental phase or parenting children who just have difficult temperaments, as in they are, you know, they challenge us or they always want control or they always want to say no. I I was just thinking, and I, I did request her permission to share a story about a good friend of mine whose son has been difficult kind of from the get-go, like from birth, he just, you know, he didn't want to sleep. And as a toddler, he was constantly obstinate. And now he just fights her on everything. And so there's there's kind of no peace. And it, what ends up happening is that time spent with him becomes really challenging. And so for them, it's really hard to find that opportunity to enjoy one another. And, and she's just, she gets so, you know, hard on on herself and hard on him and she doesn't really know sort of how to navigate it. And I wonder if you can speak to how self-compassion can help. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And so many parents have kids who challenge them in one way or another. It could be temperament. It could be that, you know, you're um, a super athlete and your child has no interest in sports or, you're a scholar and your child has, or academic performance is really important and your kid has no interest in that. So how do you manage that? And I think one thing that really helps is working on seeing the good in your child, accepting your child's strengths, even though it may not be what you wanted. And so often, and I can give you, links for this. I just um, wrote a piece on um, for Psychotherapy Networker, um, and you can post, post this on your site, Absolutely. on, you know, the things we carry and what happens when you want a child to be a certain way, and they're not. And the psychologist Carl Jung once said that the greatest burden um, children can carry is the unlived dreams of their parent. And often that's when we get stuck. We don't accept, you know, our kids' um, neurodiversity, as we're calling it now, and we try to get them to be a certain way. Like we try to get a very active kid, you know, to sit still. Not going to happen. You know, so what would happen if we can really see who our child is and go with the strengths. Yeah, you have this um, meditation that I loved in your book. And the, the book is chock full of meditations. And also, you, if you buy the book, you can get the, the voice-led um, audio tracks from Susan. Um, so and you can also get that on my website as oh, well. 
Nice. Okay. We'll link to that for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, and I remember one line from the meditation, which was like, let the stardust fall from your eyes and see your child clearly. And I just, <laughs> it really resonated with me because I think we all do for sure carry around fantasies of who we would love our kids to be. Yeah. And our kids probably have similar fantasies of who they'd like us to be, but, you know, being able to see one another clearly and, and, you know, meet each other where we're at, where we're, where we're at and where they're at um, just helps us to be a little bit more effective. But, and I think going along with that, just that self-kindness for the challenges that your child has or that you have, I think is really useful. And as you're talking to, I'm reminded of this, um, this story. Have you heard of the welcome to Holland story? No, tell me about it. So it's uh, written by, a mom, I think it's Emily Kingsley, and she talks about that when you're having a baby, it's like planning a vacation to Italy. You get all excited, you get the guidebooks, you learn phrases so you can get around. I'll link to it because I'm kind of reading pieces of it right now um, as, as we're talking. And only once you land, so you're, you think you're going to Italy, but once you land, the stewardess says, welcome to Holland. And you say, Holland, what are you talking about? I, I, I'm going to Italy. Italy was what I was excited about. I plan to eat gelato and pizza. And I, I don't even know what they have in Holland. Do they have anything tasty? And so, you know, to some extent, parenting is really about figuring out not where you plan to go, but where you're actually going and figuring out, you know, Holland doesn't have the things that I was really excited to see and taste and experience in Italy, but mm -hmm. Holland has its own treasures. And so if I can reorient and pivot towards appreciating what Holland does have to offer, mm -hmm. then I can find beauty and joy and fulfillment in Holland. It's not Italy. It's never going to be Italy. But mm -hmm. Holland can be wonderful in and of itself. And I, I do think that um, some of the frustrations of parenting can really be um, soothed when we can reorient and say, here's where I'm at. It's, it isn't where I'd like to be. And, and, you know, can I be kind to myself in, in experiencing the grief of giving up the fantasy? Mm -hmm. But also, can I orient towards appreciating what opportunities and gifts lie in this land that I, that I have come into? Well, I have to tell you, I love um, that metaphor because I spent three summers of my life in graduate school writing for the Let's Go Italy guy, writing about Holland and writing about Italy. So that's a metaphor that really resonates. But so much of that also has to do with the cognitive reframe. If you have your heart set on pasta and pizza and gelato and you end up in another place, you know, what are you going to do? How can you, as one of my friends likes to say, you know, when she was living abroad, bloom where you're planted? You know, how can you make the best of where you are, even though it's not where you thought you were going to be? Can you see the gifts there? You know, can you look at the world, your child, your life with fresh eyes? Absolutely. That's well said. One, one final um, piece of advice I'd love to ask for from you is just some ideas for how to engage self-compassion in a way that doesn't take a lot of time. Because I think 
parents are just notorious for being slight on time. And I know yeah. this to be true for myself. And I will say that I have like an immediate reaction at any time I see like a meditation or mindfulness exercise that says just set aside 20 minutes. Cause I, I don't, I don't have it. It doesn't, it's not available um, to me. And if, if it were, it would mean that I was giving up on other things that are very important, yeah. um, like sleep or my runs or, um, you know, time with my kids or being able to get my work done. And so for me, even like three minutes feels like a big ask. And what I love about a lot of the exercises that you suggest, and so I'd love to have you talk about them, is that they, you can really build them in. Yeah. So I totally agree with you. So I try to make most of the practices in the book three minutes or less. And I'm working now on a series of meditations that you can do with your eyes open. So one of the things, because I think that is also a stumbling block for many parents. Like, wait a minute, I need to see what my toddler is doing. If I close my eyes, you know, the toddler may fall or, you know, get into trouble or put their hand on the stove. So there's so many ways you can modify it. And one of my favorite practices is just taking three breaths or um, feeling your hands as you're washing dishes, or just feeling your feet on the ground, or maybe doing something together with your child. And these are practices in the book. I, I like um, Silly Walks, and you can find that on YouTube. It's a, um, from one of the um, Monty Python movies called Ministry of Silly Walks. And that's also a practice that I've seen yoga teachers um, use, you know, if there's low energy. And I've also seen um, meditation teachers use if people are feeling down or sluggish. But how about if I teach you, um, well, you tell me what you want. Um, the three breath practice, um, the soles of the feet, the hands. One of the things I like about the hands is we are always doing dishes and we are... Um, you know, uh, folding laundry. I also have a practice for diapers. Let's do um, three breaths just because for me, it seems like the most flexible one and that it can be applied when you have a toddler, when you have an angry adolescent, or when you have a son who's marrying and leaving you. Um, right. That it just seems, you know, quite flexible across the developmental spectrum. Okay. And let me do a caveat because it is flexible and it is um, the breath practice is something that people readily teach, but I find that it doesn't always work for people who have a history of trauma or for people who have anxiety or respiratory issues. But the way I'm going to teach it, it's really quick. So um, it's generally safe. So, um, and I'm going to teach it so you can keep your eyes open. Oh, awesome. So, um, and what I like about this practice is it's less than three minutes. So just start by sitting comfortably, feel your feet on the ground, feel your sitting bones, feel your hands, your shoulders, and just simply know that you're sitting. Sometimes we are so busy, we don't even realize we're sitting. And then tune into your breath. Just ask yourself, how do I know that I'm breathing? Because often we're so busy, we don't even know we're breathing. 
Sometimes people feel it in the chest, sometimes in the belly, sometimes in the nostrils. Just see where you feel it most strongly. And then just simply let yourself feel the inhalation. You don't have to force it. Just feel the breath coming in. And then the breath going out. And again, the breath coming in. And the breath going out. And the breath coming in. And the breath going out. And then just check in with yourself. How are you feeling after those three breaths? Feel free to move, stretch. So how was that for you? Um, that's actually one of the ones that I use a lot and I love it because I tend to, I always, um, the way that I describe it is my emotional temperature tends to run anxious and I, mm -hmm. I get yeah. like really tight and I oftentimes when I'm with my kids, I can feel my anxiety ratcheting up, you know, with all the things that I have to do. And what's funny about it is my three-year-old now, my almost three-year-old will comment, mommy, why are you breathing? You frustrated? <laughs> <laughs> Usually I am. So he, he, he's, uh, he's taking a good gauge on me. He's gotten pretty wise to his mama's ways. Um, but for me, it, it's like an opportunity to kind of check in on where my anxiety is and to let a little bit go, which is not to say that at the end of it, I don't feel anxious, but I feel a little more centered around mm -hmm. it or within it. And I can sort of acknowledge like, okay, I'm, I'm in an anxious point and, and, then I can make, you know, this decision about how to respond to it instead of just reacting reflexively. I can sort of slow it down enough to say, what do I need here? How can I give myself what would be most useful, whether it's, you know, a moment of compassion or do I need to sort of put my kids in front of the TV so I can check something off my to-do list? Do I need a hug from one of them? Do I need to call my husband and say, hey, I'm about to lose it. You need to come home early. But it just yeah. sort of slows things down enough that I can um, recenter and make a good choice. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a very useful thing to kind of let just a tiny bit of the anxiety go and then also make a good intentional choice. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons I find it so inspiring is because one of my meditation teachers years ago when my kids were re really little would say, you can change your state of mind in just three breaths. And I thought, oh, that's optimistic. You know, I can go from being furious and feeling like I'm going to get the roof to, you know, pausing and saying, okay, let me recalibrate here. You know, let me step back and, you know, not say something that could be hurtful. So it, it helps you, as researchers say, get into the prefrontal lobes rather than into the amygdala, the fight or flight alarm center. Yeah. For those who are interested, I mean, it's not just sort of like new age fun. It's, there's a real strong science and rationale as well as a very 
compelling theory behind it as to why engaging more self-compassion really does serve us and really serves our kids too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, reading your book was really affirming as a parent because it, and I will say too, that reading the book, you, you share so many wonderful, colorful stories from patients and of your own. And it really does sort of get to this sense of like, oh, we all experience some of this crap that goes along with parenting and some of the challenges and some of the joys. Um, So the book is great in the shared humanity piece, but also in really teaching how do you, you know, hook into this mindfulness, into this self-kindness so that you can be more effective. And one thing to mention is um, after I wrote the book, people said, you know, can you put together a guide so we can do this in book groups. So I can do this in my mom's group. So on my website, and also at the Center for Mindful and Self-Compassion website, there is a guide so you can read it with your friends. And there are practices awesome. to do you know, each week like with, that go with each chapter. Oh, I love that. That's yeah. that's terrific. So we might um, put up a link there that um, uniquely sends people to that guide because that, that sounds like a really wonderful yeah. resource. So thank you. Thanks. And we'll, I'm sure um, you have the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion on, um, on your links as well. I absolutely will. And thank you so much, Susan. This was, this was such an honor and treat to have you on. And um, I, I hope that for other parents who are listening, they... Um, found something useful in this podcast, but also that they look into exploring more of your work because it's, it's really, it can really change your relationship to parenting and really enrich your relationship with yourself and with your kids too. Sure. And other therapists might like to know about our first book, which is sitting together, which is how to bring mindfulness into psychotherapy. So again, chock full of practices. um, And for those people who are, working as clinicians or therapists uh, gives you a chance to bring um, mindful and compassion practices to everybody, even people who are homeless or addicts or underserved people. Awesome. So many great resources. We hope that those of you listening who have found it useful will share it around. And please, um, please do leave us a review on iTunes because it helps our visibility and therefore for the kind of resources that Susan is sharing to reach more people who can be helped by them. Thank you so much, Susan, for joining us today. Okay, and lovely to meet you and let's stay in touch. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.